Hi there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of institutional Christianity. And we are going way beyond the walls and fences today, y'all. Um, and uh, and I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Jenny Williams, back to the co-host seat. It's been a hot minute, Jenny. How the heck are you? Hey, so good. Summertime is my favorite season, so I'm ready to go. All right. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Jenny. I'm, you're you're going to kind of take the lead on this podcast. This one was um, was your idea and your uh, you've done all the groundwork. And so I'm going to sit back and listen mostly, but but also will probably <laughs> because I am who I am. I will jump in with <laughs> questions that I just cannot bear not to ask. Um, but Jenny, you want to you want to introduce our guest and, and what we're talking about today? Yeah, yeah. So we're so excited. We have Caleb Graves with us. I'll tell you a little bit about how I met Caleb and um, and who he is. So uh, Caleb is a psychedelics educator. So we're going to get into some psychedelic stuff today. Uh, he lives in the North Carolina Triangle. Uh, he graduated with his MDiv from Duke Divinity School. All right. That's my alma mater. That's how we connected, where his studies focused on faith, and altered states of consciousness, such as meditation, dreams, and psychedelic trips. So he's currently focusing his efforts on psychedelic theology, which is a small ministry he started earlier this year. So Caleb, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad. So um, I first became aware of Caleb uh, on a Facebook group for uh, alumni and current students at Duke Divinity School. And Caleb posted that he was going to do his uh, culminating work uh, for give a presentation for that at Duke Divinity. And uh, Caleb, it was called what? I found God in a tomato. Yes, I found God in a tomato, psychedelics and Christian theology. What a title. Uh, what a title. Was, yeah, right. Good stuff. <laughs> I love it. Stuff. It comes from one of my favorite bands. Which is? Uh, uh, it's a, a rather obscene name, the Psychedelic Porn Crumpets. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> very good. Very good. And uh, the date of the presentation was 420. So, uh, yeah. So I knew that Caleb was somebody that we needed to talk to. It was really interesting. He gave a, a presentation um, at the Divinity School, had it open to the um to the student population, the wider student population there. And so Caleb does a lot of education around the uses of psychedelics and um, spiritual development and spiritual uh, growth and, and furthering our faith and faith experiences. So um, Caleb, uh, one of the things that I loved about your presentation was that you gave um, some fairly detailed information about psychedelics, right? Most people, when they think of psychedelics, they probably think of shrooms, right? Or, um, you know, maybe hearkening back to the 60s and some of the original education there. So I think probably it's helpful to start with some of that educational background, uh, what we're talking about, what you focus on. Um, yeah, some of the particulars. So I'm just going to kick it off and invite you to, uh, to school us here. Sure thing. Uh, yeah, like you said, um, psychedelics um, are usually thought of as magic mushrooms, maybe LSD, uh, DMT, and and uh, peyote or mescaline is the active ingredient in that cactus. Um, and these are usually thought of as the classical psychedelics, those psychedelics that uh, have been used for, in some cases, six, 7,000 years. Uh, psychedelics that have an established safety profile. You're not going to go insane by taking them. You're not going to have an overdose death or something like that. Uh, but there are also thousands, literally thousands of other psychedelics out there that we're only just now discovering. Um, so some of these might be uh, natural psychedelics. Uh, the Colorado River Toad has a psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT that comes out of its uh, mucus glands, and it is one of the most powerful psychedelics in the world. But we didn't learn about it until the 80s until some anonymous crazed scientist decided that he was either going to smoke what out came out of toads or was doing a systematic analysis of these toads and stumbled across this. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really exciting time right now for psychedelic research. Uh, a lot of novel substances, a lot of exciting things uh, uh, to learn what these substances do to our minds and our bodies, uh, almost entirely in positive ways. 
That's that's awesome. So um, give us a little get a, a little background on when you're talking about uh, these different psychedelics and kind of what your work focuses on. Sure. Uh, so I like to imagine that there are uh, sort of four categories, overlapping categories of psychedelics um, that are sort of on an X and Y axis. Uh, so like you'd see on a uh, political compass chart, I, su I suppose, like one of those memes. Uh, and that would be on the X axis, you'd have uh, novel and classical psychedelics. And then on the Y axis, you'd have natural or synthetic psychedelics. Uh, so I, as I just mentioned, the classical psychedelics are those that we've had for years, we know of for years, they have an established safety profile. Um, whereas the uh, novel psychedelics are those new ones, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, 2-CB, uh, DOX category psychedelics is a big category. Uh, and those are the ones without as much of a safety profile that are new to us understanding psychedelics and understanding how they affect our bodies. Uh, now, when it comes to the uh, natural and synthetic, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you have the synthetic psychedelics, those made in a lab like LSD, uh, and then you also have those that are found in nature. And there are a phenomenal number of psychedelics found in nature that, again, we're only just starting to scratch the surface on. Um but these psychedelics, uh, originally, if we go back thousands of years, uh, specifically peyote, magic mushrooms, and uh, uh, morning glory seeds, which can contain an LSD uh, precursor called LSA, um, these substances were used by first by indigenous populations of the Americas. Uh, so long before anybody who had some concept of uh, Christianity was coming to the table, uh, these substances were used to access the divine realm, to access uh, where the gods or the spirits or the heavenly realm was. Uh, so this was often done in uh, community rituals where people could be supported by each other or that the living could access uh, the realm of the ancestors. Um, ayahuasca, which you might have heard of before, that uses uh, a vine containing DMT, which is activated by another substance containing an MAOI uh, uh, pharmaceutical. And... Uh, this was a way in Amazonia to access uh, the spirit realm. The realm of the night is what these cultures uh, refer to it as. Um, but then, of course, with the arrival of European colonialism, the collapse of uh, uh, the collapse of, unfortunately, indigenous culture, a lot of these uh, ways of understanding the world, the world fell by the wayside. But they were reestablished in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, as LSD was synthesized and psychoactive properties were realized in 1943. Um, and it very quickly became apparent that these ancient tools that indigenous people had used as medicine and indigenous people had used to access the divine, that these substances were medicines that could help with depression, shell shock, or what we now understand as PTSD, anxiety, even things that uh, probably most of your listeners have experienced at one point, migraine headaches, uh, cluster headaches, uh, nausea. Uh, any number of things, chronic pain, uh, these are all ailments that psychedelics have a de demonstrated at least potential of being able to treat for uh, anybody who would be safe to take these substances. Gotcha. Thank you. So let's um, go back a little bit to that divide between natural and synthetic. Sure. Um, so natural is going to be a plant. Uh, that we use, such as mushrooms, right? Synthetic is something that's manufactured in a lab. Or toad spit, apparently. Or, or yeah, yeah. oh my God. Still, I mean, I'm still kind of fixated on like, who was the first guy to lick a toad? And figure, but that's, yeah, I'm, we're not going down that rabbit hole. Great story. It's like the first person to try milk from a cow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who thought that was a good idea? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no worries. No worries. So you talked about safety profile, which I think is a question that some people have. You said you're not going to use them and like go mad. Um, and I think there are some people who probably trust a plant 
right? If they know they got a mushroom from somebody knows what the hell they're doing, right? And and what kind of mushroom you're harvesting. Um, Talk about uh, like why you and scholars are confident that something that's manufactured um, by humans still can be safe. Right. Like uh, sure. had friends in college that were like, mm, never going to drop acid because what if a chemist had a bad day? Right. Sure. <laughs> it's sort of the equivalent <laughs> of like, you know, someone spit in my food before they bring it to, you know, brought it to me. So like, bring, where'd that come from? Um, brought it to me. So, yeah. Talk a little bit about um, kind of the research on that natural synthetic divide. Sure. Uh, well, first, I'd, I'd really like to say um, that uh I know natural psychedelics can feel safer, uh, like slapping organic on a, a food label or something like that. Um, but really, when you get into when you get into using natural psychedelics, what you get into is uncertainty. Um, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, magic mushrooms contain could contain wild amounts, wildly different amounts of psilocybin and psilocybin which are the active ingredients. So if you wanted to have a mild psychedelic trip and decided to take two grams of a strain that ended up being particularly potent and you didn't know it would be particularly potent, um, some studies show that you might end up with five, six, seven, eight, nine times the amount of psilocybin and psilocin you thought you were ingesting. Um, it's actually really exciting. We just got some uh, new technology for testing kits for magic mushrooms to see um, how much psilocybin and psilocybin is in them. Uh, but I just really want to put out there first and foremost, just because you're taking a natural psychedelic does not mean that it's not important to follow uh, harm reduction uh, strategies and safety protocol to make sure that you have a good trip. That's uh, great. Mm, go ahead. No, but to, to talk about the synthetic uh, psychedelics real quick, we also have other tools to make sure that, as you said, a chemist didn't have a bad day. Um, there are a number of regent tests that can establish what sort of chemical do we have in these tabs or in this pill, how much of the chemical we have in these tabs and these pills, is there anything cut with these tabs or these pills? And so as long as you're following, uh, uh, as long as you're using harm reduction strategies, uh, or in some cases, uh, know people who have previously taken this batch, uh, you know that you're taking something that is safe, that has an established safety profile, uh, and that you can enjoy without any doubt that something might go wrong there. Great, thanks. So, just a couple of technical questions before um, we move on to the the focus of the work that you do with Christianity. Um, talk to us about harm reduction. What are those practices? Yeah. So, the two words, if you come away from this podcast with nothing else, is set and setting. Set referring to the mindset that you have going into the experience and setting referring to uh, your surroundings, your context where you take these substances. Um, If you were to take something uh, that has more anesthetic effects uh, and definitely wouldn't have as good of a safety profile, but something like uh, 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 heroin, for instance, or an opiate, it doesn't really matter what your context is or what your mindset is when you take this drug because its primary action is to knock you out. It's a disassociation from the life around you in many ways. The exact opposite is happening with psychedelics. Um, If there's something in the back of your mind that you don't want to think about, you're going to be thinking about it the entire trip, my friend. It's it's just how these substances work. So harm reduction in in a very basic way is to just make sure that you're prepared. Uh, Make sure that you uh, have taken care of your body, taken care of your mind, maybe done a little bit of meditation that morning. Make sure you're hydrated, well-fed. If possible, get in a little exercise, get those endorphins going earlier in the day. Um, And setting, make sure that you're in a safe place with people that you trust uh, who can take care of you if something uh, were to scare you or if something uh, were to upset you, that they can help talk you out of um, uh, some sort of thought loop or something that's frightening you. 
Um, now you can also, uh, obviously every time doesn't matter what you're taking, unless it's like you said, literally a mushroom and there's nothing else that can be confused for, uh, make sure you're testing what you take. Um, there are so many analogs and, uh, um, things being sold as mescaline or 2CB or LSD, these things that are generally safe. Um, and things that are not very safe are being sold as these things that are generally safe. Um, N-bomb is one particularly nasty analog that's sold as LSD that has been associated with a number of deaths. Um, I think as I mentioned before, the DOX class psychedelics, which are not only psychedelic, but they also function as amphetamines. And so you might end up with a 24, 36, 48 hour trip that you were not prepared Ooh. for. Just, yeah. yeah, shocking. So if possible, uh, just make sure you're testing your stuff. Uh, the good news is that, uh, again, if you're with a community, particularly of people that use psychedelics and you trust the people, uh, this is a responsibility that can be spread out. You don't have to have an entire chemistry kit in your bedroom to squirt the little dye onto tabs or onto pills or onto powders to make sure that everything is good. Um, and I'll say one last thing with harm reduction. If you do nothing else, if you're at a party or at a festival and for some reason you think that you're just going to go for it, you know, you only live once. Make sure you always have at least fentanyl tests with you. Fentanyl uh, poisoning and overdose has horrifically infected the psychedelic supply line to the point where people all over the country and all over the globe are dying, thinking that they're taking a psychedelic. And even if this isn't fentanyl being sold as a psychedelic, a lot of traffickers or sellers or anything else uh will mix the drugs on the same table so you might not even know that you're getting fentanyl in with your ketamine or with your mdma or with your lsd or whatever else um with quite devastating results so again no matter what and maybe even take fentanyl tests with you to raves or to parties even if you do not plan to partake because this is a, a incredibly tragic uh outbreak that has happened and we all need to do our part to prevent tragedy in that place awesome thank you i don't know if you would count this under harm reduction but i know that you and uh and others have talked about maybe a guide mm -hmm. um sometimes on a trip when um particularly I think where that's gaining mainstream awareness uh, insofar as the mainstream is aware of psychedelics, sure. but when we're <laughs> talking about microdosing maybe, or, um, or various experiments that have been done, right. To have a guide um, on those trips. Can you say a little bit about that? Uh, what that looks like? Sure. Um, and thank you for mentioning microdosing that reminds me to to also say to know your dosage it's easy with magic mushrooms usually you start low go slow maybe just a couple of grams to try out a batch um but this especially is the case for pills powders or tabs where it is very rare you actually know how much is in these things so start with a, a quarter or an eighth of whatever uh, you think a dose is just to make sure you know what's going on. Now, when it comes to a guide, um, I am personally not a huge fan of uh, using quote unquote professional psychedelic guides, uh, especially who are in gray area markets. Um, psychedelics uh are incredibly powerful substances and we have a number of a number of very tragic examples of abuse happening in psychedelic subculture with unregulated quote-unquote shamans and guides what i think is usually the best thing that you can do is get a friend someone that you really do trust or a family member that you know you can trust um, who is willing to educate themselves, maybe sit down and watch a documentary with you. Um, you can even get trained online for $50, $100 on how to be a good trip sitter is usually the term used for a friend. Um, if you're in an area like Oregon or Colorado or Canada or Jamaica, where you might be able to get someone who's licensed, that's obviously the best case scenario. 
Um, but if not, yeah, I'd, I'd suggest approaching a friend or a family member that you know you can trust, asking if they'd be willing to uh, go through an education program or at least the basics of harm reduction with you. And just be someone to really hold your hand or talk you out of situations that you might get stuck in uh, or just be there to listen uh, because these substances at their baseline uh, at their baseline are really a euphoric experience. So it's really unlikely that you will have a bad or difficult or challenging trip. Um, but nonetheless, it's important to be prepared if such a thing were to happen. One of the things that I'm, as I'm listening to all of this, and this is so helpful and so valuable, it, one of the things that, that occurs to me, Caleb, as I'm listening to all of this is if, if you're going to, if you're going to use psychedelics, this is probably not something you should do kind of impromptu spur of the moment. It, it really feels like something that you really need to plan ahead for, do your research, you know, not just, you know, oh, it's a it's a nice Saturday afternoon and I'm at a, you know, like you said, a festival or a concert. And sure. All, all of my friends are doing it and I'm just going to jump in like th that. That feels like um, that would be poor advice to just kind of try it um, in, on an impromptu kind of basis um, that you really do need some sort of pretty serious preparation. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does make sense. Uh, and I think that's great advice. Um, these are some of the most powerful psychoactive substances on the planet. Um, and I don't care how much weed you might have smoked. I don't care how wild uh, uh, you might have gotten on New Year's Eve with some uh, uh, wine. This is just completely different than any other drug experience that someone who's naive to these substances might have had. Uh, so yeah, especially if it's your first time or even your second or your third or your 10th or your 50th, uh, you should have intention, you should have a plan, and you should not take these substances lightly. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Okay. as we, So we've had science class, super yeah. helpful. Um, we've had you know harm reduction, also helpful, um, but that's not the upshot of why you're on the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, where we may find God in a tomato. Um, but you do work called Psychedelic Theology. This is a mm -hmm. ministry you have with social media accounts. We'll make sure that that's in the notes. Um, you used a phrase that I think we need to pay attention to that's distinctive about the way that you talk about the use of psychedelics for faith. You said, access the divine realm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think the widespread conception uh, when a person uses psychedelics is that you are seeing something that is not there, um, that it is uh, maybe creative or imaginative, but you're talking about uh, a, a different framework, a, a different uh, view than that. This mm -hmm. isn't pretty colors. This isn't, you know, swirling things, whatever. This is, uh, this is accessing a divine realm. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd first like to say that, you know, I'm, I'm very agnostic about what actually happens when you're on a psychedelic trip. Um, I am pretty overwhelmed with uh, psychedelics and what they are and the sort of experiences that they can cause. And it's enough for me to really question. It's been enough for me to really question my theology. Um, when I first took psychedelics, I took uh, advantage of decriminalization laws and, um, as Joe said, did the opposite of what I should have, took them on a rainy Saturday afternoon, didn't know my dosage, didn't really know much, but I just took magic mushrooms. Uh, and was completely overwhelmed with the experience. Positively, I got lucky, uh, but I was still overwhelmed and found that there were no resources for Christians to understand what just happened to them. Um, now, I coming out of these experiences and doing my research at Duke Divinity School and beyond, what I kept coming across was people who had experiences that were difficult to explain just using the hallucination theory of psychedelics, that this is just something that's going on in your head. Um, for instance, I once had an incredibly strong LSD trip 
where I uh, saw a very clear, overwhelming vision of the uh, 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 Hindu god Shiva doing the dance of creation and destruction. Um, a little while later, I was reading William Richards' book, Sacred Knowledge. He's a, a, a researcher at Johns Hopkins University. And he related a similar experience by a addiction patient that he was treating in a study with LSD, who, despite having no education beyond middle school, I believe, and no uh, real religious beliefs, um, had a vision of the dancing Shiva and didn't realize that's what it was until he saw a picture of Shiva one day in the waiting room of Richard's office. Um, these are situations where there seem to be common archetypes or images or experiences that even if you aren't expecting to have them in psychedelics, they happen anyways. Um, these aren't just hallucinations of the world around you, but something that's going on uh, more universally in the psychedelic experience. I also have come across a number of people, and I've never had an experience like this, um, who have psychedelic trips and visions and then evidence or proof that the experience was true um, comes out of the experience. Um, so a psychedelic researcher for the 60s, for instance, Eva Ponky, uh, lost her husband, Walter, who did the Good Friday experiment, which is an important experiment in Christian theology and psychedelics. Um, Walter tragically died unexpectedly in a scuba diving accident. Um, well, Eva and uh, her uh, psychedelic therapist and friend and colleague, Dr. Groff, uh, she underwent an LSD trip. Um, and claims that she saw the spirit of her husband, Walter, who said that she doesn't need to be afraid to live her life anymore, that she can move on, that all can be well, um, that he is okay. And then he also gave her specific instructions on returning a book he had borrowed to a friend, which Eva had never heard of before, complete with the friend's name, the book's title, the book's location in the house, even the exact shelf and sequence of books on that shelf. And sure enough, Eva and Dr. Groff went and found this book with the instructions that Walter supposedly gave and returned the book to his owner. That is difficult to explain if this was just a hallucination. Mm -hmm. Now, a, a, a skeptic can always come up, and I, I think reasonably we need to be skeptical, can always come up with ways that this is not this is simply not true. There's a naturalist explanation to this. Um, but I, I actually just finished turning in an article for the Christian parapsychologist that argues in this case that the only option is really fraud, that either Eva uh, purposefully lied about this book that she previously knew about to give her family hope, which doesn't seem to fit her life and character, or there is actually something more happening in psychedelic drugs than just hallucinations. That's fascinating. Um, some folks may not be aware of the Good Friday experiment, and I think mm -hmm. that's a pretty important um, piece of history to tell. Can you share about that? Sure. Um, the Good Friday experiment was uh, April 20th of uh, 1962. Uh in Boston University's uh, chapel, Marsh Chapel, it's also called the Marsh Chapel Experiment. Uh, and Timothy Leary, who you might know from uh, the hippie lore as the turn on, tune in, drop out dude, uh, the self-proclaimed high priest of LSD, uh, he and Walter Ponky created this experiment where they gave 10 seminarians psilocybin, which is the, as I've said before, one of the active ingredients in magic mushrooms. And they gave these seminarians this drug to try to see how did it affect them and did it resemble mystical or religious experiences while you're undergoing a trip. And what Ponky found, uh, I disagree with plenty of his methods and how these methods have affected psychedelic research since then, but he nonetheless demonstrated that, yeah, psychedelic drugs can uh, create experiences that closely resemble mystical experiences. Um, and also I find most interesting, uh, uh, you know, I think psychedelics have sort of a, a new agey or maybe an Eastern spirituality sort of reputation. 
Um, but every single one of the people who took this drug in a Christian context, a service for Good Friday, ended up having an explicitly Christian spiritual experience. They read the Bible. They tried to poorly play the organ to play Christ the Lord is risen today. Um, <laughs> one guy even had a overwhelming euphoric hallucination that Christ was returning and that he needed to proclaim Christ's love for the world to everyone and try to escape the experiment to stop strangers to say, God loves you, you are loved. Um, see, he was fine, by the way. Everything was fine after that. Um, but I, I think, you know, the Good Friday experiment really demonstrates not only that psychedelics can cause religious experiences, but also that these experiences usually take the form of the religion one is already attached to, be that Christianity or Buddhism or some sort of new religious movement or something else. Didn't, didn't you say, Caleb, did, do I remember right in your the presentation you made at Duke um, that Howard Thurman um, had been preaching prior, yes. prior to or during when this and, – and what kind of influence might that have on, you know, something like that anyhow, have on people's actual experience, I wonder, yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. I think that's such an important and powerful part of this experiment. Um, the experiment originally began in the basement chapel of the uh, Marsh Chapel. Um, and Howard Thurman's Good Friday uh, sermon was piped down into the uh, basement chapel so that everyone could hear it. And it's recorded, actually. You can look up Howard Thurman's Good Friday Experiment sermon. And if you've ever heard a recording of Howard Thurman preaching, it is booming. It is powerful. It is uh, almost like the voice of God you'd expect from a voiceover, uh, maybe in an old 1950s or 1960s uh, Christian box office movie like The Ten Commandments. Um and he was fully aware of the experiment. In fact, he was very supportive of it. Uh, so I, I do like to imagine that he was up there at the pulpit giving this powerful sermon, but also a little entertained or in the back of his mind wondering how these particular <laughs> words or this particular way of saying it was affecting 10 of his, uh, in some cases, students and colleagues who are just tripping nuts right below his feet. <laughs> That's wild. Okay, so what what implications does your work, does the use of psychedelics have for the church? Um, yeah. What what implications does this have for clergy? What implications does this have for laity? Where 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 do you see that uh, intersection? Sure. Um, I I'd say two things. One, uh, this goes back to saying that psychedelics aren't hallucinations. Um, I think psychedelics challenge us to have a better theological cosmology, the way that we view the world. And two, psychedelics are, go are going to and currently are uh, challenging clergy and churches about pastoral care when it comes mm. to these substances. Um, so on the issue of cosmology, uh, I often get asked, uh, is this experience or psychedelics really experiences of God? Or is it all in your head? As if those are the only two options that people can envision. Uh, and I think this is sadly uh, a result of how um, limited and boring, frankly, Protestant cosmology in particular <laughs> is. Uh, if you are uh, more conservative, you might have heaven, hell, and earth, and those are the only three options for, for places in the cosmos. Or if you're a progressive Christian, you, you might have one less and only have heaven and earth. Uh, and so it's difficult to imagine, sure, if heaven and earth are the only options. Is this experience one of heaven or is it of one of earth? Um, but when we look at Christian history and when we look at uh, uh, and when we look at um, the scriptures, even we see a broad variety of places that Christians believed existed in the cosmos. Um, you, of course, have limbo, you have the prison of souls, you have Abraham's bosom, you have Sheol, uh, you have uh, the third heaven, the second heaven, and the first heaven that Paul alludes to in his journey into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. 
Um, but you also have others like uh, St. Augustine talks about this place uh, where each of us has like a, a psychic body or a psychic being or essence that travels around and can appear to people in dreams or visions to provide uh, uh, information to people or to visit loved ones. Um, and this is just an idea of a psychic realm is been completely lost for the most part to Christian faith. So I think one of the big implications is that Christians are going to start having to think bigger. Um, if there is a God and if there is a spiritual realm, uh, it's probably a lot more like Ezekiel or Daniel describes, something so utterly overwhelming that we can only say something like, something like, something like, something like, as Ezekiel says so often. That's the only way we can really dis think of describing what's going on. Um, and then when it comes to pastoral care, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, and this tends to be where the conversation is, um, psychedelics have tremendous demonstrated medical potential. Um, I personally am someone who has struggled with suicidal ideation and depression, anxiety. Um, I was abused pretty terribly in my fundamentalist church growing up. Um, and after taking magic mushrooms on a routine basis, I no longer struggle with suicidal ideation. Um, this is something that has helped me immensely, yet I was not able to come forward and ask for pastoral care about how to integrate these experiences and how to integrate this change in mindset into my spiritual life. Um, so pastors and churches, conservative, liberal, everything in between, are going to have to come to terms with this. Um, in my own state of North Carolina, uh, oh, a $1 million grant will hopefully soon be going out for research on treating PTSD uh, in first responders and veterans using magic mushrooms and MDMA. Um, so I, I, I really have asked people to try to imagine what would you as a pastor or what would you want your pastor to say um, if a Vietnam War veteran came into your office and said the VA wants them to get into a trial for magic mushrooms to treat their lifelong PTSD? Um, how would you or your pastor respond if a friend came in and said that their doctor has suggested that they take LSD when that also becomes FDA regulated in order to treat migraine headaches? They're not in it for the trip. They just want to live a normal life. Um, and of course, uh, over 8% of young adults report yearly use of psychedelics, which is almost four times greater than it was at the beginning of this century. Um, so I think youth pastors, I think college pastors, young adults really need to think, uh, if you have a 100-person college ministry, you do the math. How are you going to take care of these people and provide for their souls? And are you the sort of person who's educated? So if someone comes up and says that they had a, a DMT trip, which I've met people like this, who converted to Christianity after a DMT trip in, in which they met a being of, quote, pure love and light, who told them that they were loved and wanted and beautiful um, and converted to Christianity because they said, who else could that be except Jesus? So pastors psychedelic evangelism, right? Psychedelic Can you evangelism. <laughs> yeah. Uh I, I've heard like from evangelical sources of, of Muslims having uh dreams of Jesus and converting, and they love that. But I, I've mm. I've I've heard a lot less enthusiasm for the DMT arrivals of Jesus that tell them to go to more progressive churches. <laughs> you um you just said yearly use. Uh, you also used the word routine earlier. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I appreciated about your presentation was, um, is that for spiritual growth, the use of psychedelics for spiritual growth, you're not talking about like doing this every weekend, right? You're, you're yeah. talk to, talk to us about frequency. Sure. Um, psychedelics are fun. I'm just going to say it. They are exciting wonderful. Uh, anytime I take them, 
I just am left with this feeling of awe at God and at the fact that I get to study this thing professionally. It's just amazing. And that can be very tempting uh, that you think, if I just go back again, I'll understand. If I go back again, I'll understand. Or maybe I'll get more knowledge or learn more things or whatever else. But the fact of the matter is there is nothing that psychedelics can teach us that is not available in our day-to-day life. What psychedelics can do is break down a lot of barriers that we might have to access, uh, uh, or not to access, to realize the beauty and divinity and love that is already right there with us in our everyday lives. So there are people who will never take psychedelics who will know more about what one can realize on psychedelics than someone who takes it a million times ever could. Um, What I think is most important if someone decides to partake in psychedelics is integration, which is to take a break, sit back, and ask what just happened and what does it mean for me? Uh, I think this is the most important part of the psychedelic trip. And I think when one does do that, uh, they can be comfortable never taking a substance again. Um, Of course, especially for treating uh, illness, that might not be an option. Um, but the goal of psychedelics is not to gnostically access some special realm in the sky, but to realize that everything around you is already love, is already joy, is already divine, is already beautiful. Um, it reminds me a lot of, uh, a, uh, I think it's Zen Buddhist, uh, or at least popularly named Zen Buddhist statement that before enlightenment, do the dishes after enlightenment, do the dishes before Nirvana chop, chop wood after Nirvana chop wood. Um, I am comfortable saying that if I never took a psychedelic for the rest of my life, that the lessons I've learned would remain with me forever. Um, and so I think I think that should be people's approach to it. You are not gaining special secret knowledge by taking these substances. You don't need to do it every week. You don't even need to do it at all. The wisdom and the love and the beauty that is available to them can be just as available through serving your neighbor and the poor and marginalized, can be just as available in loving your family, can be just as available as taking a hike or caring for your planet. Yeah. You know, people that I know who've used psychedelics talk about uh, the profundity of the experience, right? And it's those kinds of things, awe and love and and what gratitude really means. And it shapes their lives for a long time after one experience, right? Mm -hmm. I have a friend who um, has a spiritual background, but I don't think would consider themselves, they have a Christian background, but wouldn't consider themselves practicing Christianity and just had this experience of like, you know, it sounds, it sounds hilarious. Uh, like we would expect kind of a stoner to say like, it's all love, man. Right. Um, but, but truly like walked away as this person who was shaped by awe and gratitude, they journaled right after it. They journaled the morning after. And I don't know if there's some neurological stuff going on that reinforces that connection. If you might like journal after a therapy session or something like that, but, um, but it, the, the effect lasted for so long and, um, that, that sense of connection to that kind of gratitude or love or awe. So uh, that's, that's something that's pretty interesting to me. Um, that I think particularly when somebody is intentional about that set and setting and and what the purpose of that particular trip is, um, can really affect what that experience is like. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I'll say I, I maybe take psilocybin three or four times a year. Because for me, it is a very, very difficult, very scary, very harrowing experience, frankly. Um, There are beautiful and wonderful parts to it. But this, for me, is unearthing a lot of trauma that I have to face and deal with. Um, And so I have no desire to use psilocybin more than that often. Um, And there are people who might have similar experiences. And frankly, I, I think that's probably the healthiest approach to it. I, I have just a, a couple of more questions. We're, we're getting close to the end of our time, but sure. um, as I've listened to all of this, uh, just a couple of things kind of pop into my head and they may be sort of interrelated or maybe not. The, the first one has to do with um, interpretation. How do you mm-hmm. interpret 
the experiences you've had. And I think you've been talking about that a little bit, you know, um, and I think maybe related to that is that question of setting that you've already mentioned. What's the context yes. and how does context play into interpretation? So, for instance, within a, a, a psychedelic Christian community, whatever that might look like, sure. what what sorts of practices um, might might um, psychedelic use come up in contemplative practices, worship experiences, things like that? And then within that, you know, how do you then or, or are there any like um, guidelines or, or anything for how how to interpret the experiences you've had? Does that make sense? Does the question? Even yeah, it, it does. And frankly, this is something I am still wrestling with. Uh, and I don't think there's an answer to. Um, but I think a place where we can start is the lost Christian art of dream interpretation. Um before the high middle ages especially if we go back to the church fathers and to the desert fathers and mothers um we see that dreams were taken very seriously um well back into the time of the prophets you know some of the prophets don't have visions uh don't, don't just have visions during the day they have visions of the night this is because dreams we see repeatedly in source after source were considered a form of vision just as strong as if you had one during your waking time it was uh to quote one scholar a nightly viewing of the divine and now we think of them as just silly little things that pop through your head. You know, the, the nightly hallucinations that we all have and just totally forget about. Um, Thanks, enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Um, but you see, I, I, I'm reading through the Philokalia, the, uh, uh, the, the tome of uh, the Eastern Orthodox mystical and contemplative tradition. And you see so many contradictory ways of approaching dreams. Dreams are wonderful. They're almost always from God. Well, dreams are really just natural phenomenon, but God can use them to comfort us. Oh, dreams might be from demons. Got to look out for that. Complete chaos when it comes to how to interpret one's dreams. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think it's a good place to start. These are people who were struggling with a question that is relatively similar. If there are regular hallucinations of the night, regular visions of the night happening in your church, and I, I guarantee when it comes to 1 Corinthians uh, with Paul talking about in chapter 14, prophecy and vision and all of those things, guarantee some of those were dreams. Um, the church has wrestled with this question before. And I think if we at least begin with that uh, tradition to try to understand what were their ideas and with maybe a little more modern medical science, how do those stack up against what we know about the world? Um, it might provide us some uh, insights. It might provide us some methods of interpretation and, and spiritual care for each other. Um, so to answer your question, I have no idea how to interpret these things. Like I said, I'm generally agnostic about it. Um, but there is one, I mean, there is one uh, desert father in the Philokalia that I just read who said that God will not fault you for not accepting a revelation that comes through dreams mm -hmm. because it might be something, uh, it might be a trick, you never know, or it might just be the passing of the wind. In the same way that if uh, uh, the head of a house came home during the night and the servant refused to open the door because someone might be tricking his voice to sound like his master, um, that master wouldn't be angry at the servant for not opening the door. He would applaud the servant for being so skeptical and cautious. Um, but nonetheless, the this same person says we can we can at least take comfort in the beauty that we find in these dreams and visions of the night. And so too, at the very least, I think we can take comfort in the beautiful images that at the very least God has naturally provided us through psychedelic substances. Jenny, any, any further questions or, or comments or anything you have to, before we wrap things up here today? 
No, I'm I'm good. Caleb, thank you so much for taking time to walk through all of that with us, to open our eyes to possibilities and realities. I think particularly for the clergy who are listening mm-hmm. um, to recognize, um, you know, what role this might play in their pastoral care, uh, in their churches. I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing this work. And um, Joe, do we need to talk about how folks can get in touch with Caleb? Yeah, so I, I guess we can just ask Caleb <laughs> if folks have listened to this and have you know more questions. Um, how, how can folks uh, find you? Uh, I have a podcast that you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. That is just Psychedelic Theology Podcast. I also have my website, psychedelictheology.com, and I'm on Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, pretty much everything except Twitter <laughs> slash X, because I don't have the time for that, uh, and can just be found there as Psychedelic Theology. And and please, I, I, I am about to go do a catering job, because that's how I pay the bills right now. Hey, it... it if you want to ask me a question about psychedelics, send me a DM and I will be more than thrilled to sit and talk with you about it or uh, to go on a Zoom and discuss it. Um, so please, if you're interested, if, especially when it comes to harm reduction or making sure that you are safe, uh, feel please feel free to reach out through any of Fantastic. those formats. Well, thanks so much, Caleb, for being with us. I think you know, this is such a it's a growing field. I think a lot of us. Um, especially, you know, folks my age are really, you know, we, we're kind of stuck in the past for, for what we have learned, um, you know, about psychedelics, especially like LSD. But we, I think we are sure. starting to see, and you mentioned at the outset, like potentially a lot of, you know, really beneficial uses, um, for, for some of these substances. And I think it's just, I think it's just smart for us to pay attention, um, to what's going on with them. And as, as you mentioned, you know, to educate ourselves, uh, especially those of us who are in sort of pastoral or leadership roles, um, so that we can just help folks navigate um, all of this as, as as more and more knowledge becomes available to us. So, thanks again, um, Caleb, for being part of it. Jenny, thank you so much for uh, for pulling this together and for for leading this episode. Always appreciate you, my friends. Uh, you can always find everything we do here at Accidental Tomatoes on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. Every episode of the podcast, in addition to excellent blog posts by people like Reverend Jenny Williams and Brad <laughs> Davis and Heather Moore and others uh, appear there on a semi-regular basis, <laughs> at least until I can get my shit together a little bit more and get back, get back on a schedule. But Caleb, Jenny, thank you both so much for being part of this episode. And so friends, until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. <laughs>